you take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 8. As I said, we'll be looking at uh, Psalm 98, but uh, we'll be considering this, this passage as well. So uh, we will begin with the 18th uh, verse of Romans 8. Stand for the reading of God's word. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, we, we just sang about how our king has crushed the curse of death. And because of that, we are his forever. Lord, give us joy in knowing that to be true. Will you open now your word to us? You have spoken. It's for us to hear, but for us to hear, we need you to give us ears and open hearts to you. Will you illumine our hearts? Will you give us encouragement? Will you help us to know you better? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Well, we have been uh, looking at some of the, the phrases and, and the verses of the hymn, Joy to the World, not so much looking at that, but using that as a, a theme as we looked at what the Scripture says, and Isaac Watts, who was a pastor, wrote the words of joy to the world based on Psalm 98. Now, it was written in the 1600s, and here's the, the problem with when we hear that. Some of us might be tempted 
to think, oh yeah, joy to the world, the, the 1600s, times were far simpler then. They didn't have the challenges that, that we have right now. Of course, it was easier to find joy in the Lord. Well, let me tell you a little bit about the time when it was written. The town where Watts was pastor, Southampton, had been decimated by the bubonic plague that had killed over 100,000 people in and around London just a few years before. Families were torn apart. There was poverty, economic problems, there was actually persecution on the church for their beliefs. In fact, Watts's father was in prison for his belief when Isaac was born. It was a time of uncertainty. Is that sounding more familiar now? Imagine they had dealt with and were dealing with the ravages of a pandemic, basically. So Watts found comfort in Psalm 98. And I am convinced that that same comfort is there for us in our time. One commentator wrote about Psalm 98... Uh, one cannot read this psalm without becoming a happier man, without lofty views of God, without feeling that he is worthy of universal praise, without recognizing that uh, he is in the world where the mind should be joyful, that he is under the dominion of God whose reign should fill the mind with gladness. So let's look not at the song, but at the psalm that inspired the song Joy to the World. First thing we want to, we, we see in this is the, the joy in knowing that it is the Lord who brings salvation. Uh, turn to Psalm 98 if you wish to follow along. It says in verse 1, O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. So the psalmist begins with a burst of praise, and then he explains why. Why he is, uh, he is overflowing with praise to God, and it's because the Lord brings salvation. Now let's go back. This is the fourth in, a, in this uh, Advent series. And remember why there's actually a need for salvation. God created the world and Adam and Eve. He gave them what they needed. He gave them everything they needed and they had perfect fellowship uh, with one another 
and with God. There was no mourning. There was no crying. There was no pain. There was no sickness. There was no death there in the garden, the way God created it. And then, because they disobeyed God, sin came into the world. And then we looked at Genesis 3. We see the curse pronounced on Adam and Eve and all who came after them on uh, the earth. Enmity came into the world. Even the world itself experienced the curse. In Genesis 3.17, it says, Cursed is the ground because of you, and pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. And that's why we read from uh, Romans 8 that is connected to that, that is talking about uh, what the earth is going through because of this curse. In Romans 8, 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. It was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And, and in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Far as the curse is found, that's what we talked about in our first message in this series. Now, you may say, well, why, why is there a curse on the earth, on the creation? It didn't do anything <clears throat> to deserve that. We're cursed. And so is the world. Why? Well, the curse is all around us. The curse is really everywhere we look to show us the seriousness of choosing sin over choosing a relationship with God. This is what happens, is what God is saying it affects not just you and your own choices, but the entire world is cursed. And so all around us, we have reminders of how serious this is. Every time we see suffering, every time we see a tornado, a destructive tornado, every time we see a hurricane, a tsunami, an earthquake, destroy things, we should be reminded that the world we live in is under a curse. And it's going to be that way until Christ returns. That's what these things should remind us of, that we are cursed and so is the world. Now, that in a nutshell is why salvation was necessary. So here the psalmist declares that he has worked salvation. In verse 2, it says, The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. Now think about it. How visible was 
uh, salvation when Jesus was born? How visible, how widely known when it took place. Here's what one commentator said about the difference between Jesus being born and what it will be like when he returns. He said the first time Jesus came, he came veiled in the form of a child. A star marked his arrival. Wise men brought him gifts. There was no room for him. Only a few attended his arrival. The next time Jesus comes, he will be recognized by all. Heaven will be lit by his glory. He will bring rewards for his own. The world won't be able to contain his glory. Every eye shall see him. He will come as sovereign king and Lord of all. That's the difference between the two. Now, here's the good news. You won't believe this. Jesus is coming back. We aren't celebrating in Advent just that he came. And when I say just, I'm not minimizing that one bit. But what we celebrate as well is that what took place in the stable is not the end of the story. It goes on and it has a a good ending for God's people. These first two verses of Psalm 98 are reflected in in the first stanza of, uh, in stanza number three, rather, of Joy to the World. No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. That's at the second coming. Verse three, then, in Psalm 98, he has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. That verse along with verse 9 is is reflected in the third stanza uh, of joy to the world. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Now our passage goes on to talk about joy because the Lord is king. He brings salvation and he's the king. Verse 4, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord. So what the psalmist is doing here is he's, he's, pressing forward this this picture of praise the way it should be. God is king over all the earth. It's not sufficient for one voice to proclaim that. It's got to be all the earth proclaiming it. In fact, it's not enough to shout with one voice or to sing with your voice. We need to bring in the whole orchestra. You you see up here, and these aren't even all the chairs. We're going to have the biggest orchestra we have ever had uh, this afternoon and tonight. But think about this. Here's, Here's what 
what he's saying. He's saying uh, there is a, a progression. It starts with, with voices. Sing. And that in and of itself, if you take all the voices of the redeemed and put them together, what a sound that would be. But that's not enough. More volume brings in the strings. That's not enough. Bring in the brass. And so you can see it grows and it grows because the King, the Lord. So it starts with us rejoicing. Then all the people are called to joy and praise. Then all creation joins in and is called to rejoice. Why? Because the creation is going to be redeemed as well. It will be made right as well. And then we see that call to joy continuing on. And it's for an amazing reason. It's a reason that if if you were asked, what are the things that you are joyful for? You probably would not list. And yet he talks about joy because the Lord is judge. And we get it that we rejoice because of salvation. We rejoice because he's the king. But why rejoice because he's the judge. Verse 7 says, Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together. So all creation is called to join the praise. And then he says why. Verse 9, Before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. And that's why why. Everyone who are his and the entire creation will be praising because he comes to judge the earth. He will judge, it says, the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. So why should that bring joy? The fact that the Lord will judge the earth isn't necessarily what we would think of as a reason to rejoice. Now, there's two ways you can read this verse here. You can read it as joy because the Lord is judge or joy because the Lord is judge. We can rejoice over both, but our great joy should be because The Lord is judge. And when he judges, it is perfect. And there is, for the first time, perfect equity. That one emphasizes that it's a good thing for God's people that he is the judge and no other. So what happens when he comes back? The second coming of Christ is going to answer the curse. 
It's going to deal with the curse. We said that in our first message that, that uh, there we have the fall in, in Genesis, then we have the curse, and then the whole rest of Scripture is moving us toward a consummation, toward a, a good thing. And everything between those are necessary before that time comes. That time when there will be perfect judgment. For the unbeliever, it's going to seal their eternal punishment. For the believer, the Lord, our advocate, will stand up for us. And we will not receive punishment because he's already taken it. He has already accepted it for us. Instead, we will be sealed then for eternal, glorious pleasure in him that we cannot even imagine. God gave John a glimpse. And I'm convinced as wonderful as it is, it's still only a glimpse of what it will be like. And that glimpse is recorded in Revelation. Revelation 21, he said this, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Now think back to the garden. Where was the dwelling place of God? It was with his people, with Adam and Eve. So now, in the future, this is what we will see. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. So remember what I said and what, what you know of the garden, that in the garden there was no death or mourning or crying or pain and all those things that came after sin came into the world and the curse was pronounced. And we have been dealing with death and mourning and crying and pain ever since that time. Here's what will happen when he comes back. Again, Revelation 21. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. What do we dread? What do we dread? Most people dread that process of death. And here, God showed John there'll be a time that you won't need grief recovery groups. There'll be a time when, when we will never attend another funeral, another memorial service. That time is coming. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. You who are in pain all the time, 
Think of that. Why should we say, be saying, Lord Jesus, come quickly? Well, you who are in pain, you don't have a problem with that. There'll be no mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things that passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. What does that sound like? Remember, remember Jesus on the cross? He did his work of salvation and he said, it's finished, it is completed, it is paid for. And then fast forward to when he comes again. He's going to fix everything. And then he will say, it is done. And that will be the last time Things need to be fixed. There will be no more crime. False religions will be exposed. And not only that, it's actually going to be better than the original garden. And here's why. Because there will not be the possibility of sin ever coming again. There'll be no need ever again for a curse because of sin. That will be over. And Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. So who are the thirsty? Well, Jesus addressed that in his ministry. He said this in John 4. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. God's people, those in need of him, and we will drink of him and never be thirsty again. We will be satisfied in him alone. The first coming, Christmas is joyful if we receive the king. The second coming is joyful only for those who before that will trust in Jesus Christ for their eternal life. Let's bow together. Lord, will you give us hearts of endurance for while you have us here. But hearts that like the world we live in groan and long
long for your coming because we know things will be right. It will be well. We look forward, Lord, to that time. And Lord, help our, our greatest longing not just to be that we will be out of pain, not just to be about us, but to be that we will be with Jesus forever and he will be all we need. We ask for this in his name. Amen.